Blog Talk Radio. Everybody and welcome once again to another episode of Trendlebed Tales. Today we have episode 123 with Little House, Little House's own Ma and her new book, Bright Lights, Prairie Dust. And I'm just going to take a minute here and we will do a little housekeeping. Now, uh, I want to welcome everybody aboard. This is episode 123. Uh, Normally, we have the phone lines open for the show, but we've got a lot of stuff to cover today, so we aren't going to do that, though you normally can call in. And we, I don't really have uh, a good schedule set up for the next uh, month yet. But we're going to be having Nancy Copelon, who just came out uh, with the next Pioneer Girl Project revised text, and we're looking forward to that. We're also going to be doing some uh, travel episodes. So if you have any travel tips or things that you were most excited to see uh, about the home sites, be sure to let me know about those. And we're going to be starting with our first episode in December on Pepin, Wisconsin. So tell me your best, uh, best hints for that. And you can email me at info at trendlebedtales.com or find me on Facebook, Twitter, all over the place on social media. And with that, I think we will call that the end of housekeeping today. And I am going to go ahead and bring in today's special guest. Uh, Karen, would you please introduce yourself? Oh, hi. I'm Karen Grassley. Pleased to be with you today. Well, thank you very much. Now, I know you just said it, but I know there is some um, people reading your name don't always pronounce it right. So could you say it one more time so everybody knows? (laughs) Karen Grassley. 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 My grandfather decided that that's how it should be pronounced because we were in America and that's how he thought it should sound. But in the town where my dad grew up, they still say Gracely. Huh. Well, actually, uh, uh, Grassley is the name of our state senator and that's the way he pronounces it too, so... I'm, I'm, glad I'm aware of that. <laughs> so uh, we're going to be talking about your book today for the most part and also some sort of behind-the-scenes stuff about the TV show. So um, your book is called Bright Lights and Prairie Dust, and it's been um, fairly marketed towards the Little House people, even though there is a lot more than that in the book and, uh, you know, quite a bit more than that in your career. Uh, who do you see as the audience for this book? Well, I see the audience as women from the age of, say, 16, even 15 to 95. It seems like there is... Um, a lot of advice based on your own experience included. I think that another part of my audience are the people who are thinking about seeking a profession of acting because I have a great deal of experience and I share that experience in detail from training to theater experiences to what it's like to work on television how it is to audition and get a job, all those things. 
Yes, there was. I, I think it definitely comes through as that, that there's a lot of solid advice there for someone considering a career in acting. Uh, now, you started out with a lot of theater work. What do, you, how, what do you see as the difference between working on a theater and acting on a television show? Well, you know, maybe it's a little bit like the difference between having a visit with your family on Zoom and getting together around the dining room table. You know, it's good to get together, but it's something different when the physical presence is there. So in the theater, you have a kind of organism that is formed by the members of the audience at that particular performance and the actors in that particular day and time. And that event is unique to itself. It can't ever be the same again. And it makes it uh, somewhat special. Uh, And physically, I think there's a bigger impact, for example people's voices and bodies make ripples in the air and they impact the audience in the theater. But uh, we don't quite have that same impact if you're watching a film or television, although they have their own power and impact. And it's kind of a different experience, too, because... In the theater, as you say, it's sort of a unique experience. Even if it's a classic play and everybody there has read the script, uh, it it is different seeing it acted out with different people in the parts. Uh, and it's it's such For a different sure. experience as somebody watching, especially something like uh, the Little House TV show where people watch it over and over and over again to the point where they have it memorized. And that seems to be uh, very different than how you experience when you're shooting it, because of course you're shooting it out of order and you never know which uh, cut they're going to take. So a lot of how you remember the show is probably more based on being there at the time it was shot and less on what ended up being the exact finished, polished episode. Would you say that's For right? Sure. For sure. Um, making a television show was a new experience for me. I had done soaps in New York. I had done plays on public television, but I had not shot uh, the way we did, which was like a, making a small movie uh, every seven working days. So... We worked very intensely, very quickly, and um, there wasn't a, a lot of room for error. Time was of the essence. So we did shoot uh, very much according to a schedule that would make uh, for saving time. So everything that was going to be shot outdoors would be shot outdoors at the same time, whether it happened in the beginning or the end. And the same with the inside shots and the different locations inside. So uh, we had to really be on our toes as actors to be sure that we understood what the character had just experienced and what the character was going to experience later you know, and not anticipate the ending. Now, um, in order to play Ma, from reading your book, I did not realize quite so much that you had to do to change your appearance to play Ma. Uh, You had wigs. And I have to say, I always thought that Ma's hair down was, was too short, but that was a very impressive fall. I was very convinced that was your real hair. Wasn't that beautiful hair? Um, oh, really that was, was really, yes, that was the art of the movies, you know. Um, when the show was picked up and we knew that we were going to make lots of shows, 
then uh, the budget became available to have Ma's hair created. And I went with our hairdresser, our stylist, Larry Germain, who was the top, top of his game. And we went to a man who, that's all he did was make wigs and hair pieces. That was his specialty. And I have forgotten now the number of colors that he used in order to achieve that extremely natural effect that he got in that fall. Wasn't it beautiful? Oh, it it really, you know, um, my my father was in theater. He taught um, theater lighting down at Manhattan University. So we've seen a lot of theater stuff. And I Uh just never, I'm, this sounds like I'm way too impressed, but I just never even suspected that that wasn't real hair. It, it really was gorgeous. Did it? It was. And it was yeah. also the way that Larry would blend it with my own hair, you know, because it wasn't a full-on wig that we ever used. It was always him blending it and arranging it so it seemed real. And he liked to call it studied disarray. Well, he did an excellent job, which does not happen all the time. There is um, another television show that I really love, but there's a a short period where the main actress in that was wearing a fall, and it's on YouTube now, and there's all these comments about what is wrong with her hair because they didn't realize Uh that was what was going on. So it can come out a Uh lot. Uh Uh-huh. yeah, and and you also uh, had to do the corset, which you know I was expecting when you do a. a oh, I was get, had one more question. No, I never that. never wore a corset. Oh wow. Um, no, I never wore a corset. Okay, uh, let me jump back to the wigs. I forgot there was one more thing I was going to ask. Did it hurt wearing it? Because Allison always talks about how her wig well, had combs on it. Yeah, she had to wear yeah, she had to wear a full on wig, uh, which is a whole other thing and and the way those have to be attached and everything, it's it's much more uncomfortable than what I was dealing with. So for me it was the early morning call to have my own hair set in little rollers. Um wet set and then sit under the dryer for 20 minutes and then have the hair combed out and blend it into the bun, usually the bun. And um, that was, um, you know, a fairly rigorous process. Okay. And you did have, from what I understood from what was in the book, you did have some padding you had to add to to be ma. Is that right? Well, I felt that the character of the mother would have bigger breasts than I had. That's just the way I felt about the character. And so we padded a bra for a ma. Well, I think that that is uh, very interesting because I, um, I always am interested in how people uh, come up with the looks of television characters, especially something someone like Ma where the clothes didn't change too much. So you always wonder right. how exactly they got chosen. And I, yeah. have, I have kind of a question. It's probably going to be a little weird question, but you wore – a blouse that was sort of, it looked on TV light blue with kind of blue, darker blue splotches on it. Is Was that thing cotton? Because I thought it yeah. looked so silk when I saw it on TV. No, no. It was a lovely cotton, very, very nice soft cotton. I loved wearing the cotton clothes because where we were working all summer, it was so hot. And that brown suit that I started out the show in was uh, raw silk, and that was so hot. 
So I was really happy when I got my cotton blouse and then later my whole cotton dress. I was ready to celebrate. <laughs> yes. Silk is definitely hot in in the summer. So I'm well, I'm glad to know that because it's a stupid thing to worry about. But every time I look at it, I try and <laughs> look at whenever you have got it on, me on the phone. So you might as well ask it now, right? Yeah, I think you should ask whatever you want to. Because I swear to God, every time I look at that, I go, well, what is that blouse made of? So say, Yeah, don't ah. go to bed tonight, Sarah, and say, gosh, I wish I had asked for such and such. Oh, well, I've got one of those questions for the end that nobody else is going to care about than me. But we're going to go through things people are more, other. there's more other people interested in first. Uh, but could you sort of take us a little bit through what the stages are of shooting an episode, sort of the steps overall? Mm, so, for instance, uh, doing the, the indoor sets and the outdoor sets, sets primary uh-huh. photography, close-ups, looping, that kind of thing. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, so if you're shooting like um, an old-time movie, which is how we shot, um, you usually start by shooting what's called master, and that's the whole scene from beginning to end. Then new setups for coverage, which is coverage of each actor that needs to have a medium shot or a close-up shot, And all of these are being kept track of by a script supervisor who writes everything down and how many times it was printed and gives each one of those takes a number so they can be edited together later. So it's considerably different now with uh, all the technology that has come along People will do an independent movie now and they'll um, use the technology to substitute for new setups, new lighting, and new coverage. And I'm not sure how those turn out because I haven't been in a position of actually making one of those that I got to see later to see if it worked. So then you do every scene that way from beginning to end and with coverage. Let's say you're shooting in the schoolhouse. Then the next scene you might be shooting in the church because it's the same location. So now you get into your Sunday outfit, you go back in to the church and shoot bringing in the sheaves. Uh, then you might go uh, to the Olsen's Mercantile and buy some flour in these. And then everybody would pack everything up into trucks. The makeup man packs up all his makeup. The hair man packs up all his hair equipment. Everybody moves the next morning. You're on location and you're ready to shoot the exteriors that go with those other scenes. Or maybe new scenes altogether. It just depends on what the script is. So you might and, be shooting outside, yes? And your uh, exterior shots, the ones you did mostly in Simi Valley, those weren't real houses. Those were just sort of prop buildings, right? That's right. Okay, go so on. let's say you let's say you're shooting in Walnut Grove. You might uh, start out uh, at the mill, and you're walking with your eggs and the girls, and you're going over toward the mercantile. And then the girls would go on and go up the stairs into school, and you'd go up the stairs to the mercantile, or whatever they were shooting. You know, would just depend. And, and they uh, cut one, that together. 
so uh, after they did sort of the principal photography, did you ever have to go back and do sort of pickups for shots they didn't realize they needed? Very rarely because it was an extraordinarily well-organized company. Um, in the case of a matter of faith, Mike came in one day after we had finished shooting that, and he said, it isn't good. We need to reshoot some of it. So he took me the next day. Um, he had me go watch the the uh, rough cut before it has any music or any color correction or any of the final polish. So I went and I saw the rough cut, and indeed, it just wasn't very good. Somehow the pain and the suffering of the character it just didn't come over, and it all seemed very remote, and kind of who cares? So maybe a day or two later, when the kids had all gone home, because they always went home earlier, um, he came in and said, okay, we're going to reshoot X, Y, and Z. And that's what we did. And we worked to make that show better. And it must have worked because people still want to talk to me about that show and and are so riveted by what they saw. And that was because Mike caught the problem and we fixed it. But that was extremely rare that that happened. Most of the time, we were ready to move on to the next show. So uh, did you have to do much in the way of... Um, of doing sound corrections or anything like that, you know, just little things oh, that sure. happen. Well, when you're working outside, you've got planes flying overhead, cement trucks at the property, oh, you know, a couple of miles away, and they're grinding up this gravel and coming down these uh, rough roads and heading out. So, we frequently had to stop and wait because a plane was coming in or because a truck was coming. But sometimes we didn't have time to wait. We had to go ahead and shoot it. And then we corrected it in the sound studio, which is a big dark room, and there's a control booth. And the actor stands with earphones on, and this is very familiar to me right now because I just recorded the audio book for my, my own book and I went through this again. So you're in a dark room and you've got the, your headphones on and in the case of looping, which is what it's called when you're replacing dialogue you already did but they can't use it because of some technical problem. Um, you hear the line in your ears, and then you record the line. And the people in the control room know whether or not it will fit with the mouth of your character, and they will correct you if you uh, are you know, too slow or too fast or whatever. So it's quite a skill, looping. And uh, some actors, you know, they make their living um, dubbing foreign films and things like that. They're quite good at it. So um, how long did it take normally for a episode to go from uh, approved script to being on the actual television? Well... It, dep it varied tremendously from approved script um, because I'm sure some writers got approved quickly and some had to do a lot of rewrites and so on. Are we okay? Do we need to stop? Oh, no. Hello? It was, I, unfortunately, where I am recording, I do not have a good shut-off button, but I dealt with it. So 
Well, why did I sympathize with that? So it uh, doesn't, doesn't bother me. We'll just keep going. Thank so, you. Um, sure. So, for example, season one. We started shooting, I think, sometime in May. And then we were aiming oh, to, be, to go on the air uh, the Monday after Labor Day or the week after Labor Day. So from May till September seems like a long time. But we were hurrying. We were under pressure because there are so many steps between shooting a scene, let alone writing the script, making the copies and sending them out, let alone casting the people who aren't in the family, right? All that yeah. You have to find the right actor for the part. All that has to be done before you can start to shoot. Then music has to be written to go with it. Looping has to take place to correct those sound problems. Uh, color correction has to happen. Editing, you have to get that thing tight so it fits exactly into 48 minutes, right? So it's a lot of work. And that's why movies take so much time, you know, why you hear, well, that we, were, we made that two years ago. It's just now coming out. So we were working at a very fast clip. And what the way Mike explained it to me was because it took us eight full working days to shoot, sorry, seven full working days to shoot one episode, let's say you start on a Monday, you don't finish until the end of the day, the following Tuesday, because the weekend is off. So now you're a week and a half almost, and when you go on the air, you don't get any slack there. You're on every week, every week, every week. So as soon as you go on the air, your time to complete the next one starts to get shorter and shorter. That's a little bit hard to understand, but if you think it through... No, I I understand. That's uh, why they ended up having two different leads on Maverick is because it was taking too much time to shoot an episode. So they said, okay, we're just going to have two different sets of uh, of shooting going at the same time. It it does take a uh-huh. long time. Uh-huh. Uh, so, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. That's, that's, they were originally just going to have uh, James Garner be the the one Maverick, and they uh, brought in, oh, I'm going to be terrible and not remember his name. Was it Jack Kelly? I'm not I sure. I have no idea. So. Playing the, the brother. Okay. So, and there was a lot more work going on to the scene than just the, the acting. So uh, when you get on set, you have to do hair and makeup, costume, you have stand-ins, shooting with the lighting. So there's a lot of people involved. Yeah, was there, there... there were... Go ahead. No, go ahead. That's fine. There was about a core of 100 people to make it go. And you just don't think that when you're seeing it on the, on the air. It's, it's just incredible how much work it takes to um, make it all show up nice and polished. Yeah. Uh, Now, uh, one of the things, you are going to think this is the noisiest house. It's just one thing after another, isn't it? Uh, um, One of the things that Melissa Gilbert always likes to talk about is the food that you guys were cooking, that you had dinty more (laughs) students. And Kentucky Fried Chicken. Did you have any fun little thing like that since you were doing the actual air quotes cooking? I don't know what you mean, fun thing like that. I mean, Dintymore stew. I mean, please, Dintymore's, don't send me a case of that. I mean, as 
as good as it is and as much as we loved it on the prairie, I ate all of that I ever want to eat. (laughs) Well, another thing I always was interested in about the food were those popcorn scenes. And, And it always bothered me because I was wondering if it was grease, um, you know, popcorn popped in oil. It's really greasy. And there you were on the bed with the blanket in front of you. And I was thinking your hands just must be as greasy as heck. How could you eat and just be in the bed like that? Because I would always, having to be someone who has to do a lot of washing for things like that, it just... I always noticed. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess you would have been more comfortable if we had napkins, but I think the scenes were about something else, you know, and those scenes, which I thought were charming um, and such a nice way to establish the intimacy between Ma and Pa when no one else was around and gave them an opportunity to give perspective to whatever the issue of the episode was. So it it was a moment of calm when Ma and Pa could say, well, now what do you think about what's going on? And give a different point of view. And I thought that was a rather clever thing to have as a running scene in the show. And I quite liked those scenes until I was in negotiation for my contract and then Mike took advantage of those scenes to embarrass me and punish me for asking to be paid. Okay, we're going to circle back to that in just a minute, but I've got a couple more general questions first before we dig in with that. you probably are approached by a lot of fans. Uh, I think there's probably more fans today even than when the show was really on. What is it about the show that you think uh, has continues to attract people? Well, I think we all have a longing for connection. And the family was an idealized family. Uh, It's uh, well portrayed, it's warm, and it fulfills this calm, comforting feeling that everything will be all right. And the same with the town. The townspeople looked out for each other. And I think there's a sense today that people don't feel their neighbors necessarily looking out for them. I don't know. I, I'm sure it's different in different places. But um, the fact that our country is as divided as it is today of people not being willing to respect each other if they disagree, that's very strange um, and different. Uh, to say, let's say you don't agree with me about something, Sarah, okay, you don't agree with me, but I can still like you and respect you and we can still, you know, run into each other at the market and exchange pleasantries about what's on sale. But this idea that people have to demonize each other and say, well, if you believe X, then you're evil, crazy to me. I mean, people are going to have all different kinds of beliefs all over the world. And we can't be putting each other out in the pasture for it. Jesus. Well, I'm especially upset. I'm especially upset when it comes to people who say that they are Christian people. Because Christian people, it says, love one another. That's what Jesus said. Love one another. I So I don't get it, all this demonizing. 
Well, when you disagree with people, there's sort of a process you go through. And at one point it is um, that you think people are people who don't agree with you don't have the right information. And then it goes to people who don't have the right or people who disagree with you are um, stupid or evil. And a lot of people get stuck at that level. And it is, it definitely That's has right. a lot worse the last couple of years. Although I think um, it, I think about any time period you pick, if you think about it long enough or learn about it, unfortunately that kind of thing comes up again and again and again. But you're right. It is Well, that's true. It is a problem in human nature. <laughs> and that's true. Um, and I do think that in our country in particular, I can't speak for other places, that I was discussing this with my son the other day. You know, there used to be so many good jobs in this country. And when people started feeling that they couldn't provide for their families, I think they felt very left out. And we need to do something about that so that we once again look for lots of people to have opportunity, lots of people to have good jobs, lots of people able to hold their head up high. And I think the way that uh, the economy has gone with so much wealth in so few places, that's, that's contributing to these resentful feelings. Well, I think you are, are quite right. Uh, I want to spin back to Walnut Grove just uh, and home site visits for a couple questions, and then we'll get on to uh, talking about Michael Landon a little bit more. But uh, your, your appearance at Walnut Grove was back in the 70s, was their first cast experience. Was that uh, the first time you'd visited one of the Laura home site towns? Oh, you're speaking now about Walnut Grove, Minnesota. Oh, yes. Walnut Grove, Minnesota, the real okay. town. I'm sorry. I was not clear. <laughs> I didn't. Yeah, I didn't know. I, I couldn't figure out. Okay, so could you could you ask me again? Sure. You were the first cast member to visit Wal- the real Walnut Grove, Minnesota, uh, which is one oh, of the yeah. places Laura lived in real life. So was was that yeah. your first home site town visit? That was everybody's first home site visit. I mean, there were no home sites, Sarah. There was. A tiny sign, I have this actually, I think it's on my website. There was a little sign near Plum Creek that said, Home of Laura Ingalls Wilder. That was it. There was a a creek and there was a sign. The homestead was gone. And um, they took my picture there and they they brought out a TV crew and everything, you know, and we... They gave me a sunbonnet to put on, and, and and so we did a series of photographs there, but there was nothing. And yes. we read in the paper later, I don't know if it was true, but we read in the paper later after we'd been on the air a while that the family who lived there were selling clods of dirt because so many people were coming there and wanted a piece of the homestead so they gave them a piece really that i have not heard that one i'm not shocked yeah Um, down the road in riverside a little bit they sell what they call kirk dirt because uh the character was supposedly going to be born in riverside iowa and so they've got little vials of dirt um to buy a piece of Riverside in Iowa. But I have never heard of a Laura wow. one. I will have to dig into that. Um, yeah. yeah the, the story they always say is that you were going to be wearing your ma dress and that it, it got lost. Was that true or did they just 
were you always planning on wearing no. your pants? I had maybe somebody uh, was planning on me wearing my ma dress, but nobody ever told me, and I didn't have my ma dress with me. So, uh, as far as I know, it wasn't part of the plan. It was a okay. wonderful day. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, we usually see the pictures of you with the stuff. There aren't a lot of pictures of, like, visitors to the site. Did did people get to come and see you, or were you just kind of making um, a sort it was of media. Media? It was just media, yeah. But then we had a lunch in the community center. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what the name of it was, but the com- first I went to the school. All the kids were in the school, and the school band played, and then I came in and made a little talk to the school, and then we went to the community center, and they made a wonderful country lunch, you know, good ham, potato salad, you know, all those things that you have at one of those community events. And uh, all the people from the town were there. And everybody was excited. And we did autographs and pictures. And I think they even gave me pie. And I love pie. <laughs> well, that's good. Midwest is known <laughs> for a pie. Yeah. Now, that was, um, a, that was a very nice day. Well, that's good. I'm I'm glad. Um, I've seen the pictures. But it you know, like- but you know, there there's a wonderful museum there now, right? And yeah. uh, it's a yeah, the wonderful performance that they give. It's just fantastic what they do there, and yeah, all but- that has grown up since that day when there was nothing. Yes, the uh, Fragments of the Dream show, uh, I always say, is like uh, the TV movie version of a pageant because it's got all the special effects and the script has been, you know, polished down and it's such an incredible experience and it's very different than when you attend the pageant and just or the pageant in Mansfield. Uh-huh. It, it really is a, uh-huh. a different thing. Uh-huh. Uh, so when you, uh, you did some of the earlier big reunions for the show, but you haven't done a lot of smaller home site things. You came uh, and you did Walnut Grove by yourself once, I think, and Mansfield by yourself once. Uh, do you think you'll be doing more small-scale home site events as part of promoting your book? Absolutely. I'm hoping that people will invite me. Now that well, we've gotten I, through the pandemic. Yes. It will hopefully we you know, will we're almost we're almost through. <laughs> we're almost through. We've just gotta yeah. hang in there. So I I hope so that, that you get uh, invited places too. Now Walnut Grove has a deal with some of the stars that they will have uh, copies of their books signed to sell even if the you know, at at any time during the year. Are you uh, planning to be part of that so people can get an autographed copy of your book? Um, or is well, there they, another We way? haven't. I, I don't know what you mean by a deal. I mean, everybody's glad to have their books uh, for sale at any of these museums and sites that we're all grateful for anybody that wants to sell the book. And I'm sure everyone is cooperating to autograph them if that makes them more desirable. I'm not sure that there's any deal involved. Um, I, well, I will maybe be very I should glad. Have said, maybe I should have said system, just a way to do it, I meant. Yeah, I will be, I will be very glad to have my book available at all of these places. Okay. Well, let's 
cycle back around to Michael Landon. You started talking about him earlier, and it seemed like you were having a lot of um, issues with him. Did you feel singled out? I know he had some other issues with people on the set, but it seemed like from what you were describing, it was more focused on you than on other people. Is is that how you perceived well, it? I don't know what other issues you're thinking of that he had with other people on the set, but I would be interested to hear it. Um, in the meantime, I'll just point out that Mike and I had an absolutely fantastic collegial relationship, collaborating on scenes, uh, working together um, very, very happily throughout the first season. Um, It was only when, at the beginning of the second season, when my attorney and I approached him to see about my raise, that things began to turn. And... uh, The way they turned was that Mike said, well, there has to be parity between you and the girls. And I I couldn't understand that. Here I was, a trained actress, Broadway, New York Public Theater, and um, he thought I should be paid the same as little girls. I didn't see that. I thought he was diminishing um, my character when he said, oh, well, the network has done testing, and you're not everybody's favorite character, so they don't want to pay you, and so on, this kind of thing. And there were many days of many different efforts to pull me into line, And I just kept showing up for work, doing my job the best I could, and hoping to get my contract settled. And it took a very long time. And finally, it did get settled. And I hoped that we would go back to that collegial relationship that we had had before. And some days, Sometimes we did, and sometimes no. So it did change things. Okay. Um, is And I know that is kind of a common thing that happens on TV shows, but um, I'm kind of wondering why they don't don't sort of have the raises built in as the show goes along. I mean, it it just seems... Um, because, be, I'll, I'll explain it to you, because I asked the same question of my agent. When they first presented the original contract to me, I said, wait a minute. This isn't what people get paid to do television series. And he said, no, no, of course not. If the show is a success, then the contracts are renegotiated. So it was after the first year, you renegotiate for the next six seasons. That's Hmm. where we had the difficulty. So uh, another big issue that you addressed was battered woman and you uh, battered women and you did a movie about it uh, even before the big success of the burning bed uh, the movie's called battered and is available on prime uh, have you continued uh, with that kind of um, of support and um, getting information out to people about issues like that I'm very interested in women's issues of all kinds. And um, with, with Battered, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to make that film was because, you know, Little House was, the, you know, the perfect parents, the perfect kids, and everything 
was always resolved at the end of one hour. And I wanted to speak to the families who have more complicated lives and where there was a grittier reality because that's the kind of reality that I came from where the fam the parents meant well totally were well intentioned but had problems to deal with so that's one of the reasons I wanted to do something like battered and um I have continued through advocating for uh equal rights amendment I think I've written about that in the book and um right now what I feel is the biggest women's issue of all is climate because our children and our grandchildren are having their home destroyed and uh, it's just uh, tragic. And another issue that you uh, had talked about was your alcoholism. Are you still sober? I am. Thank you for asking. I am a sober woman. I've been sober a very long time now. Um, let's see, 44 years. And, oh, wow. Uh, I got so- <laughs> and I got sober uh, when I was on Little House on the Prairie. And one of the reasons that you hear about a lot of actors getting sober in Hollywood is that the work is so hard, the hours are so long, and you have to get up so early that you just can't keep it up. You know, you just can't deal with it. So your disease brings you low, and mine brought me low. And I had finally one final horrible hangover after one more argument with a dear friend and a sobbing self-pitying night and I said I have got to never take another drink and I really didn't know what that meant I didn't know whether that meant that I would lose my boyfriend not be able to go out to a restaurant lose my job I really didn't know but I knew it was true, and it was a miracle. Um, I have not had a drink since. Well, that that is something to be immensely proud of. I, I know that is sort of a, a constant thing, and you should be so proud uh, to have made it that long. Is there a chip for that? You know what, what I... What I am proud of is that I was willing to go for help and I was willing to listen to the people who knew better than I knew what to do. And I was able to follow their direction because I wanted to stay sober and I wanted to get better. And it's available, you know, free help is available for anyone who wants to stop drinking and uh, I urge anyone who's thinking about it to grab hold join and there's always a meeting somewhere close so that is a definite important thing all right, mm-hmm. I have one more question, and then I will let you remind everybody uh, about what about your book and uh, where to buy it and everything. Now, this is going to be kind of an, an odd thing, uh, but the, what I really, I was not expecting to find in your book was that you had been on Guiding Light, and Guiding Light is my favorite television show ever. And oh. I know you were, were just on for a short period of time, but I wondered if uh, you had gotten to work with Charita Bauer or Don Stewart. Oh, dear. I have no idea who I worked with. <laughs> well, uh, it was 
did you and um, so you just came or and see I'm all excited about this I can't even come up with a good question yeah well you know I I was probably on that show in the mid 60s mm-hmm. for one week or one week and a half so you could figure out from whoever was on there then who I worked with but I have no idea well I knew it was kind of a long shot because you know you don't remember it is (laughs) but it was just I was I was just super excited to see that you (laughs) so anyway bringing it about to the book uh, do you have anything uh, scheduled for the coming year so far as appearances or known signing yes. opportunities? All right. Well, what, yes. what do you have? Well, first of all, I would like to direct people, Sarah, to my website, karengrassley.net, where as appearances are confirmed, we put them on there. So people can always check and find out. Uh, also, any podcasts, uh, radio interviews, um, Zoom television appearances, anything like that, that will be listed on the website as it's confirmed. What I know right now is that I have a book event at Interabang Bookstore in Fort Worth. I believe that's in January. Um, and... Um, I have a festival of women authors in Berkeley in February. And um, otherwise, I have to refer people to the website. Okay. And if, if, they if, want people a... want, if people want autographed copies, there are places listed on the website where they can order them. They can either... Um, uh, right, to, uh, it's all on there. It's a little long for me to go through it all. Okay, I will add a link to that in the show notes, so everybody. Oh, can great! Thank that you. Out. That'll help. Good. Uh, and uh, we are about out of time. Was there anything well, that? I... Was no, there anything... I thank you very much for your. Go ahead. Go on. <laughs> I thank you very much for your time and your interest, and uh, I thank all your listeners. And um, I hope people uh, enjoy the book. I wanted to share my life experience, and I think that a great many of the early readers have encouraged me because they say it, it gives them courage for the challenges that they face. And the book ends kind of um, at more of a pausing place than a sort of finale. Are you considering doing a sequel if this one goes well? Not today. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I hope everybody enjoyed today's episode and that uh, we will uh, be seeing Karen at a lot of upcoming home site events. That will be great. Thanks so much. And for everybody else, remember, it is always best to brighten the corner where you are. And as you can hear from the parlor clock on the mantle, it is indeed the end of the episode. I appreciate you joining us for this episode of Trundle Bed Tales and that we will uh, be seeing you back here again next time. And catch you next time on Trundle Bed Tales. (laughs) 